Hey, good morning. How's everybody doing? I got to be honest, when we first started and Gutierrez was blocked off, I was like, all right, it might be like a church gathering of three people. So this is a pleasant surprise. I'm so glad you're here. Um, and for those of you that are joining us outside in the parking lot, glad you're here. For those of you that are joining us at home, glad you're here. Stacy and Dylan, love you, miss you, see you soon. Um, <clears throat> let's get into the Word of God. Turn with me to Mark chapter 9, Mark chapter 9. As we are turning there, I just want to ask about this, though. This gets continually farther back as the weeks go on. It's like a receding hairline. Is it my breath? Is it my preaching? I'm sorry if it is. <clears throat> but I might move my pulpit farther that way as it goes on. Just kidding. Mark chapter 9, verse 42 through 49. Here's, here's <laughs> Thanks, babe. <laughs> That's my wife. Thanks, Tony. <laughs> oh, wow, this is awesome. <laughs> Colette, Robert, you guys are the best. <clears throat> uh, if you are just joining us today, we take part of this time to go through the gospel of Mark together. We just like going through the word together. Uh, we take this from the command of Jesus, who said, make disciples of all nations immersing them in the reality of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. How do you do that? By teaching them to observe all that I command, um, says the words of Jesus. And so we like taking time to do that. One of the most rewarding practices I've ever experienced was just reading through a gospel. Uh, whether you're a first-time believer or you're not a believer, you're not sure you are, or you've been following Jesus for, for 50 years, opening up Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, uh, and just reading with the intent of being taken in by the story of Jesus. So we want to do that today. We're a little over halfway through the Gospel of Mark, learning what Jesus has commanded, what he's said, what he's taught. And we've said this from time to time. Uh, we want to take in everything that Jesus says. Sometimes what Jesus says is really sweet and heartwarming. Other times it's really challenging. Well, you came in at the right time. Today is going to be one of those challenging words of Jesus um, he talks about all sorts of stuff, great millstones, you know, around your neck and hell and all of that. But uh, if our first standpoint is to trust that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and everything he says is good and trustworthy and worthwhile, um, I ask that you would move through this with me. I think out of this text will be hope for your heart and soul, even if the initial reading uh, is a little jarring. So Mark chapter 9, verse 42 through 49, you remember this comes right after Jesus rebukes the disciples for getting on the case of this disciple who casts out a demon. You remember last week, if you were here, uh, John, with his elitist uh, attitude, was like, we just saw somebody doing your work, but he's not with us, so we told him to stop. And Jesus rebukes John in that moment and carries on right here in verse 42. I won't read the whole thing. We'll just read verse at a time as we go, and I'll explain verse at a time. Mark says this. Actually, Jesus says this, as Mark quotes him. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. This is God's word. Happy Sunday, everybody. You are dismissed. No, just kidding. <clears throat> uh, 
Um, this is one of those moments. Jesus says some really nice, heartwarming stuff on occasion. Sometimes he comes with some elbows. Uh, he comes with some truth. He comes speaking in his style, using over-the-top hyperbole in order to get these principles and truths of the kingdom of God across. And this is the first one. And I think everything we're about to read can probably be couched under a single thought. This is a call for awareness. A call for what I might say is kingdom awareness, a deep awareness. In other words, not just an awareness of the time or what's on our schedule or what we're gonna be eating for dinner, but a deep awareness, a prioritized awareness of what actually truly matters in this life. All those other little things matter too. God cares about them, but this is a call for something deeper. And that first call of awareness might be being aware of others. Being aware of others. And getting that from that first verse we just read together, where he tells his disciples, anyone who causes one of these little ones who believes in me to sin, it would be better for that person for a great millstone, it was a huge, huge brick, if I could call it that, huge round brick that they would use uh, to crush wheat and grain. It was so heavy, you needed, a, you needed a beast of burden like a donkey to pull it. He says, it would be better for you if that was tied to your body and you were tossed in the ocean than if I were to catch you messing with one of these, with one of these little ones. Now, a couple of things, these, when he says, whoever causes one of these, he's probably referring back to verse 41. That was our last text last week. Uh, what was that? He's referring to that believer, that disciple, that unnamed, unspecified disciple who, for all intents and purposes, had this childlike faith, you know, and came along and was like, I'm, I'm gonna cast out a demon too. I just saw Jesus do it. I'm gonna do it. Does it? And then John, the elitist, comes along and is like, you can't do that, right? It seems like, grammatically, contextually, Jesus is referring to that person still. I wanna give you a picture of what this looks like. Like, everybody, uh, you might recall starting out when you first encountered Jesus or your 10th encounter with Jesus, whatever it is, but it's that like, it's that, that moment that you're just, your soul is refreshed and you realize how good God is and you're like, ah, I wanna, I wanna do this again. Or maybe it was for the first time. How many of you, when you first were introduced to Jesus, your mind was blown, your heart was full and all you wanted to do was like understand him, you were getting into the word and you were getting involved in church and and one of those things that seems to mark people who are new to the faith is a childlike belief that what Jesus says is true. You know, the new believers tend to be crazy, right? They're the types of people that are like, oh, they, they read like in Mark or whatever for the first time that they hear Jesus say, you know, if you believe in your heart and with faith that uh, what you say will come to pass. You can say to this mountain, be thou removed and be thou cast into the sea and it'll happen according to your will. A childlike believer who's been like a Christian for like two minutes, they're like, wow, really? Okay, let's do it, you guys. Let's just get a prayer meeting together. We're gonna pray for the whole city of Santa Barbara. We're gonna call down renewal upon everything. And that's the moment where the seasoned Christians come in and they say, bless your heart. They're there. Settle down. 
that's not what that means, okay? You know, you haven't been in my shoes for very long. I've struggled and life is hard and sometimes prayers don't come to pass and you know, blah, blah, blah. And then all of a sudden that, that passionate believer is just like, oh, <laughs> you know. We've maybe encountered moments like that. Maybe we've been the, the seasoned professional. Um, slightly jaded, bitter, hurting, <laughs> tired for many valid reasons. Because life has been hard, but we've lost that sense of faith. We need those others in our life that are full of faith and maybe a little bit crazy. And Jesus seems to be protecting those people. He seems to be alluding to that disciple. When it says little ones, we might think physically little ones, like children. I don't know that that's what he's talking about. Um, because of the particular word he uses, he's using to refer to those who believe in Jesus, possibly people who are fresh in their faith, possibly believers who are on the fringes, possibly people who are a little immature in their faith. Now, obviously, Jesus cares about children. There's lots of verses that speak about that, but this seems to be tied to verse 41. He seems to be talking about that passionate believer who's a little bit immature, maybe not too far in their faith, maybe they don't belong to the right Christian crowd, and he's protecting them. When it says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, that word cause to sin is a single word in the Greek. It, it means, uh, it's a skandaladzein. It's where we get the English word uh, scandal, scandalize, to scandalize uh, someone who, who is in a journey in their faith. And it means literally to put a stumbling block in their way, to trip them up, to impede them. And so this picture of what Jesus starts with is be aware of others. Uh, to put it in the words of, of the pastor Pete Scazzaro, uh, everybody is on a different journey in their faith. I'm on a different one than you're on. You're on a different one than the person next to you. Everyone is on a different section of their journey. And it's incredibly important to give people space for that, to not judge where they're at in their journey. You might be looking upon somebody who's just not where you're at. It's okay. Jesus looks upon that person with compassion. Jesus also looks on you with compassion, knowing that none of us are truly where we need to be in our journey, but we're on a journey. Jesus seems to love that journey. He seems to love you. The takeaway with this section is a person's faith journey is very precious to God. Don't judge them or hinder where they're at. Come alongside them, empower them, champion them. Be a wing and not a weight. I wonder if somebody in here needs to hear that today. There's a lot of wounded faith in the world today. The last two years has wounded the faith of a lot of Christian people. A lot of Christians tired. A lot of Christians worn out. I'm not even talking about outside of the church. That's true too. I'm just talking about us. A lot of people disillusioned. Maybe even a lot of people in this building. Maybe you. I hope that if that's you, you hear the compassion 
in Jesus' voice for you. Hyperbolic, almost violent compassion for you. Who would say, don't anybody dare touch my brother or my sister who's struggling. Don't anybody dare hinder them. They're on a journey. And if you do, don't let me get my hands on you. I hope you hear Jesus saying that on your behalf, not an accusation towards you. Be aware of others. That's the first call of awareness, I think. But the other always seems to follow Jesus' commands towards others, and that's towards ourself. The next one is be aware of yourself. Here's where it gets a little gritty. Verse 43. I'm going to read this all the way through verse 48. You ready? And if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands and to go into hell to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet and to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell. Where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. Mmm. You know why Jesus talks like this? He's famous for this kind of language. It might sound completely outlandish and crazy to you, and if it does, Jesus did what he intended to do. <laughs> uh, there's a lot of catchwords in these one, two, three, four verses. Cat by catchwords, I mean fire, salt, hell, which we'll talk about. These were a typical mnemonic device in Jewish culture. You have to keep in mind, uh, in the first century and beyond, the Jewish people who prided themselves on Hebrews, uh, Hebrew scriptures did not have Bibles like we did. They had to memorize it in story form. That means just like Deuteronomy tells the dad to sit down at the table with their family and to impress the words of God on the family's heart and over the dinner table and on their foreheads and on their hands. So that was the task of the Israelite, was to remember God's word. But how do you remember God's word when you don't have it written down? They did it through stories. And they did it through what's called a mnemonic device. Fire was easy to remember. Salt was easy to remember. Those two things were deeply woven through the Old Testament scriptures, specifically Isaiah, where we get verse 48, where the worm does not die and the fire is not quenched. We'll talk about that in a second. Or the third catchword, hell. Anytime the Bible mentions hell, in a sermon that I have to preach, I have to address it. Because what I've found over the last almost 15 years of ministry at Reality is that most of our hellology, our theology of hell, has been shaped by Dante's Inferno and medieval artwork than it has by actual Jesus' teaching. Um, I did a little piece on this on Instagram Live a year ago. People hated it. Um, because it's not what we grew up with. 
It's not what we grew up with. And today, because you're my family of brothers and sisters, I want you to see, I'm gonna present to you two ways of viewing hell. Different Christians in different parts of the world have these, and I'm gonna show you mine. This isn't something to divide over. You can believe whatever you've come to the conclusion, but I do want you to see there are multiple ways of seeing it from the scriptures. The one most of us as evangelical Christians grew up with is that hell is a torture chamber buried under the earth, full of fire that God sends people who don't want to go there to be tortured forever, right? Um, that, I've come to believe, has been shaped more by medieval paintings than by what the Bible actually says. I want to take a few minutes to tell you what the Bible actually says, and you can make your own conclusions. Hell is real, and hell is bad. Hell is miserable. But the question is, why? The word, used, uh, the word that's translated hell in English in our Bibles, and specifically the one that Jesus uses here, comes from the Greek word Gehenna. Gehenna was an actual, literal place. It was an actual place. It wasn't like the outer world, you know, in the cosmic uh, space realm. It wasn't a place under the earth. It was actually just a mile outside the city of Jerusalem. I've taken uh, some of you to Israel about three times, and when we were there, I showed you a specific place. You can go there. It's on Google Maps. Gehenna, or what we call hell, is an actual physical place. You know what it was? It was a trash heap, a garbage dump, on the outside of the city walls of Jerusalem, where all of the refuge, all of the trash, all of the junk was dumped in order to be uh, burned. And so typically, that vision, speaking of mnemonic devices, any Hebrew kid who heard hell would have immediately understood what Jesus was talking about. Oh, that's the garbage dump outside where I just put my dirty laundry that doesn't fit me anymore and the stuff that uh, I, I shouldn't own, and that's where mom and dad sent it, where there is a literal fire burning uh, over and over. This is the word Jesus uses to describe what we understand as hell. Eternal judgment is, oh, to go back to that trash heap, what that picture meant for the Hebrew living in Jerusalem. It was a trash heap outside the life-giving city of Jerusalem, a place of decay and a place of deterioration. And this is the picture that Jesus and the apostles show us when they tell us what judgment looks like. And there's a subtle difference there, right? There is judgment. That is actually a core doctrine of the Christian faith, is that we will face God and give an account for how we lived our life. And some of us will face judgment for that, for what we did with Jesus. But what is that judgment? Some of us would say eternal judgment is God torturing people who really wanted mercy and just never got the chance. I don't believe that. It's okay if you do. It's not a disqualifier. What it seems like from both Jesus' words and the apostles that, that it, eternal judgment is real. But according to the whole of scripture, it's really, if you want to be oversimplistic here, it's us just getting the full range of our own self-inflicted freedom. It's us getting what we want which is a very hard thing for an American, right? Because we love getting what we want. Freedom, 
Not all freedom is good. And we see this all the way back in Romans chapter one. What is the worst thing that God could do to a sinner? Well, we see in verse uh, chapter one, three times, Paul says, God gave the people over to their lustful desires. Two verses later, he gave them over to the passions of their flesh. Two verses after that, he gave them over. This is what God's judgment is upon rebellious people. He gives them what they want, and what rebellious people want is a life outside of God's rule and reign. And when you are immersed in rebellion, when you are saturated in sin, when you're drowning in your own ego, uh, ego that seems like a good thing. It's not. And so what is hell? Well, have you ever done something wrong and really experienced shame over it like a day later or whatever? Have you ever cut corners at work and then we're just like, oh, I feel so bad about that? Or did you betray a good friend and after that feel so much shame? And you know how that feeling eats you up and it eats you up. Have you ever done something so bad that it kept you up at night? What happens when you continue to do that? Well, Paul told Timothy, you can sear your conscience to where you don't feel as bad as you used to. But initially, guilt and shame and that rebellion that's inside of humanity is, ter is a terrible thing. And it eats us up and it deteriorates our soul. But you can sear your conscience and live that way for a long time. Imagine a lifetime of searing your conscience and getting your own way apart from God. Uh, steamrolling people for your own benefit and stiff-arming God. You'd be a mess at the end of your life. Now I want you to imagine living that way apart from God's grace for a million years. And that's still not hell. C.S. Lewis once said, the worst thing that God could say to a human being is, thy will be done. Have your way. And one of the things that a human being regenerated by the power of the Holy Spirit in submission to the King Jesus, the true Messiah and the Savior and the King of the world is to say, not my will be done, but yours, O Lord, even as Jesus himself did. Second Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9 says that eternal judgment is, and this is one of the, this is one of the most uh, face value descriptions of hell that I've been able to find in the Bible, and it fits with all the others, it simply says, those who face eternal judgment will be cast away from the presence of God and the power of his glory. What is hell like? Some of you, when you read this text that Jesus says, when he says, pluck out your eye if you're looking at something that you shouldn't, isn't it better to lose that than to be thrown into hell? You read it in this way. If I mess up, God's gonna burn me alive forever. I think a more truthful and accurate version of what Jesus is saying is if you continue to turn away from God, you're gonna get what you want. And you might think that what you want is a good thing, but it's misery. Life outside of God's presence and his rule and his reign is miserable, and properly speaking, it is hell. And everyone who is there is there because that is what they want. They want their freedom so badly, they're willing to give up God to contain it. Like mold spores, hell is what emerges from humanity, turning away from God to freedom of self. 
We weren't made to be free apart from God. And so our godless freedom ends up hurting us. And over time, it snowballs into a cycle of destruction, our inward selves turning in on each other, leading to misery and ruin for eternity. That is the picture of Gehenna. Hell is the natural outcome of a life lived apart from God, which results in misery apart from his presence and apart from his rule. And Jesus uses the strongest possible language to get your attention to that. Interestingly, he also uses strong hyperbolic language to get your attention about the kingdom of God. Not here, but in other places. To show us the eternal beauty of the kingdom. Matthew chapter 13, verse 44 through 46. The kingdom of heaven is like treasure hidden in a field. Which a man found and covered up. And then in his joy, he goes and sells everything that he has to buy that field. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a merchant in search of fine pearls. On finding one pearl of great value, he went and sold all that he had and bought it. Do you see what he's saying? He's saying the kingdom of God is like finding like tons of gold underneath like some dinky shack in the woods and you know it's there and you're willing to give up everything you have to buy that field or that house because you know the value of what's underneath it. He's describing the kingdom of God that way. He's saying if you knew what the presence and kingdom of God was like, you would sell everything you had. You would get rid of everything. Your treasures, your comforts, your fleeting joys. You get rid of a proverbial foot, an eye, a hand. It is so beautiful. It is so wonderful. It is so good to be in the house of the Lord and in the presence of his son and in the power of his Holy Spirit. Nothing on this earth compares and everything good on this earth that does find its value only finds its intrinsic value by its connection to Jesus Christ. The kingdom of God is so beautiful. It's so good and it's what you were made for. And if you could see that, you would not waste your time on this earth. You would do everything you could to chase after that. And here are the two lives. You either get a life of the kingdom of God or you get yourself apart from God. The two could not be more starkly contrasted. And Jesus begging with all of his visual language, saying, please choose the kingdom. And in this passage about the hand and the foot and the eye, when he says, hey, if, if your foot is causing you to sin, take it off. Wouldn't you rather lose a foot than, than have a life of hell? <laughs> he's, he's saying, hey, is the thing you're, that's, is the thing you're compromising your integrity with really worth the state of your soul? Imagine how he might say that to all of the Christians who are tired right now. Deconstructing, compromising, falling off the wagon, saying to themselves, you know what? I'm just gonna live my life for a year and then I'll come back. Hear Jesus saying, is it worth it? Is that little bit of compromise worth your whole soul? I think the point of this passage up until this point is this. Nothing in life should be allowed to prevent us from entering the kingdom of God. Not others, verse 42. Not ourselves, verse 43 through 47. 
do whatever it takes to press in, not out. In other words, don't, don't, don't chop off your foot, okay? <laughs> That's not what he's telling us to do. He's saying, be mindful of your life and the life of others. The kingdom of God is worth it, and some of you are on the verge of losing it. Don't lose it. Your life is too precious to me for you to fall off the wagon. It, doesn't, it might not look like it makes sense right now. Your faith might not look like it makes sense right now. Your journey, where you're at in that journey, might not look like it makes sense to you right now, and you might be tempted to give it up. Jesus has not given up on you. And there will be a light at the end of the tunnel. I don't know if it's going to be tomorrow. I don't know if it's going to be in a year. But there is going to be a light. This I know and understand. Jesus is real. And Jesus is true. I can't control the outcome of your life. I can't control your circumstances. I can barely control my own. I can barely, I can I can barely ascertain the certainty of my own life, but one thing I can be certain of, Jesus is the Messiah, and he's got your hand. He's got your life in his hands. And if he says, don't give up, don't compromise, it's for good reasons that you and I need to hear today. So take a hard look at your priorities today. Do you value your foot over eternity? Insert into foot, whatever that means for you. Um, this is really a story of self-awareness. I think there's one more thing that he says here. Be aware of others, be aware of yourself, and this is where we'll close. He ends with a, a pretty funny line here. Mark chapter 9, verse 49. He says, for everyone will be salted with fire. That does not sound comfortable. <clears throat> um. But what I think, and this is hard. I, I did my best with this line. This is a hard line to interpret. I did my best. So do the Berean thing, examine it yourself. But it sounds like what Jesus is saying is that we must be consumed in our discipleship. Here's, here's where I'm getting that. Salt, like the rest of this passage, was a deeply entrenched metaphor Salt was re actually required, um, since we're talking about fire and the fire of sacrifice. Leviticus 2.13 actually tells us that salt was required to accompany all Levitical sacrifices. So it was common in the worship of Israel for two things to always be present, fire and salt. Okay? It seems like he's continuing that metaphor. Some scholars say maybe the combination of fire and salt are here to symbolize the trials that we're going to face and the cost of discipleship. That might be a way. Others might be saying that with the, the you know, salt and fire refer to the Levitical sacrifice itself. Maybe discipleship to Jesus must be totally consuming. Whatever it is, I think Jesus is trying to wake us up. I think both of those are probably true. In fact, Paul would say in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. Don't you love that? He doesn't say, I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, because God is a sadist who likes to hurt people who don't listen to him. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers and sisters, by the mercies of God. Present your bodies as a living sacrifice holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship.
give your whole life, be totally consumed to Christ, even if you're not quite sure what that looks like or how that's going to iron itself out, it's okay. I ask Joseph to come up again as we, as we respond in song and communion and prayer. And I want to leave you with this. There will be fires in life, right? There already were. Feels like the last two years have been two years of fire. Literal fire on the hills. Metaphorical fire in our relationships, in our jobs, politically speaking, even in our churches. And there will be more. And in the midst of those fires, I want us as a church to ask what Jesus seems to, provo- seems to be pushing. What really is that important? I think if we were to look at this passage, he would be say, be aware of each other. You guys need each other. Help each other. Don't push each other down. And two, be aware of yourself. What are your real priorities? As the world is falling apart, what really matters to each of us? And lastly, I think this is a call to go all in on Jesus Christ together. All these years of following him, I've too been disillusioned and hurt and upset and sad and depressed and grieved. I've also been overjoyed and excited and happy. My life with Jesus has been a cocktail of emotion, if I can call it that. But in the midst of those emotions, whether I was doing good or doing bad, one thing I can stand before you and say today is that Jesus has never failed me. He's always been present to bless, not just through the good, but through the bad. Are you going through fires in life? I have somebody I want you to meet. His name is Jesus, and he's got your back. Push into him, not away from him. As we respond to whatever he might be saying to you today, I just want to invite you to kneel before your seat or on these carpets or go to the side of the room as the lights dim. Go off over there. Hit that comfortable chair. I don't care. Whatever you got to do to just get between you and Jesus. We have communion to the sides and also outside. Maybe at home you can pour yourself a drink and some bread, remembering that this is not just not only a statement of Christ's sacrifice to bring us into the kingdom, but it is a communal sacrifice. So when we take it, we, rem- we remind each other that Christ has brought us together. Be aware of yourself. Be aware of others. And be aware of Jesus who is in our midst. Amen.